Hello, hello. This is Reality of Reality. I'm Aliza Rosen, a longtime TV producer and development executive. Every week on the podcast, I talk to interesting people in all aspects of unscripted content. Okay, so before I introduce the guest, I want to ask you guys a quick favor. I promise it will only take a minute. If you can please go to iTunes, give me a five-star rating, a short, short review, glowing, of course, would be preferable. I would really appreciate it. Today on the podcast, my first repeat guest since I started the podcast almost three years ago. But I think once you listen to it, you'll understand why I broke the rules here. After watching the incredibly powerful documentary, Finding Neverland, I knew I had to speak to Laura Richards. Laura is a criminal behavioral analyst. She used to be with New Scotland Yards. She's not just a friend. She's also been my partner in crime on several big projects over the years. She breaks down the psychology of predator behavior and coercive control, which is an important term that you'll learn about. It's not just in the Michael Jackson case, but it's in the also incredibly bizarre but must-see documentary, Abducted in Plain Sight, and we get into that as well. A warning here, we do touch on some sexually explicit material, so this is not one that you want to listen to around your kids. Hi. Hi, Elisa. (laughs) It's great to be on your podcast. Yeah, you know you're my only repeat guest. Oh, is that right? Ever in like 80 podcasts. That makes me very happy. <laughs> this I is have a big say. day. I'm very happy about that. Well, thank you. And this time, like last time you have a partner, only this time it's the adorable Queen Bee, her amazing doodle. I do. Queen Bee always has to represent. <laughs> so here she is sat on my lap again whilst we're trying to have this conversation. Yeah, she has she to be needs part to of know. proceedings. She does. She's just like, give me the mic. So Laura and I just quickly to recap, and I just looked up um, if anyone wants to hear our first podcast. Um, it was September 26, 2016. Wow. So over two years. Ago. Yeah, when we did the case of John Benet Ramsey. Um, so that's a great listen if you guys haven't heard yet, but a lot of people listen to it, FYI. So that was a big hit. Um, and Laura and I know each other now for 10 years. I was over 10 years. We developed and um, did a show together for LMN called Killer Profile about serial killers. It was very upbeat and fun. As you can imagine, <laughs> most six of the cases. Stuff, most of the stuff Laura does is just a romp. It's just a, a just a really good time, right, Laura? It is. Well, that's why, you know, Queen Beatrice in my life and going to Captain Marvel premieres right. and comparing Marvel with Shazam and, you know, trying to get a little bit of work-life balance has, has been very good for me in the sunshine in LA. Totally. You need it because a lot of your stuff is dark. So just do a quick intro and kind of like who you are and what your expertise is for people who don't know. And 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 just to say, if you, if I'm sure a lot of you uh, listen to Real Crime Profile, which is a very popular podcast that Laura co-hosts, but if you don't, take a listen and um, they do amazing cases and your expertise is? So I'm a criminal behavioral analyst. My specialism is in homicide and sexual abuse, domestic abuse, stalking and risk assessment. So I worked at New Scotland Yard for over a decade. And really what I started to understand was that when we were profiling cases, a lot of the offenders were known for domestic violence. So I created a reverse engineering process to understand risk markers so that we could get into intervention and prevention. And that led me on to build a risk model called the DASH. And I went on to spearhead law reform after I ran the homicide prevention unit at New Scotland Yard. And having listened to accounts from families whose daughters had been murdered by their stalkers, I wanted to help the families. And so we set about changing the law on stalking to make it a criminal offence. And then uh, in 2015, when that happened, sorry, in 2012, when that happened, I realised that we really needed to understand domestic abuse far better and put coercive control at the centre of it. So I spearheaded that law reform campaign and 
that was successful and we I also set up a charity for victims of stalking called Paladin which is the first national stalking advocacy service in the world so there's a lot of other things in between that but that's really it in a potted uh, in, yeah. a, in a nutshell yeah there is a lot I, I know that for a fact well I always say it's great when what you do for a living and the zeitgeist intersect <laughs> because in your case there's no better time to be doing the work that you do because it seems like everything that we're watching and hearing and seeing in the last two years you know really since Me Too and even Dirty John which you know we both were involved with and you're you're working with Deborah Newell to change the law here in the US so it, it's an incredible time not in necessarily a good way but for activists like you who actually are putting their money where their mouth is and have this expertise to be seeing and, you know, finally these words and these terms and all of this stuff, right, that you've been trying to talk to people about for years, people are paying attention. That's right, getting it in the zeitgeist. And, you know, it is a great time, particularly for women and empowerment. And of course, International Women's Day was yesterday. And every time that day happens, I spare a thought for the women that are no longer with us, who have been brutally murdered, and also those who've been silent and have been silenced, I should say. So yes, it is a good time. And it is fantastic that people are starting to understand terms like coercive control, but there's still a lot more work to do here in the US. And I know some of the cases we're gonna talk about today is really, you know, they are, this, at the center of them is coercive control and this brainwashing. So the more we can do to educate people, the better, because I still get asked these questions, well, what is coercive control? And what do you mean by brainwashing? And, you know, can you explain that a bit more? And why didn't she leave? Or why didn't they tell about the abuse? All these things that really are complicated and do need to be explained. There's, um, and I'm so glad we're going to dig into it because I, I still people are now texting me, is this course of controls? Because by working with you and knowing you and talking to you, I've learned a lot. And now if someone tells me a story of their mother living with some guy and tells me stories, I go, oh, this is, you got, you got to get her out of there. This is right. course because I know the markers now. And um, it's just, it, it is so important to educate because people don't have the language or even the knowledge a lot of the time. It is, the lens that you see things through or even the language. Sometimes the victims don't have the language. They right. don't have the words to describe what's happening. Well, that actually segs perfectly into kind of the first thing I want to talk about. We're going to talk about Leaving Neverland, um, Abducted in Plain Sight, and then a little bit of R. Kelly. And, and it's incredible that even though they're three very completely different cases, there are so many commonalities. And what you just said segues perfectly into Finding Neverland because what struck me, um, I think it was in, the, in either an article I read or Oprah, was that these guys didn't even have the language to know that they were sexually abused. Well, forget the language. They didn't even understand that they were sexually abused until decades later. That's, That's fascinating. Right. And, and many don't. I mean, just to say with coercive control, for example, 51% of female victims don't realize they're being controlled or they don't even use that word abuse. So, so yes, a lot of victims. And of course, if they're a child, how do they know? How do they know that that's something that is uh, a behavior that shouldn't be happening? You only have your own experience. And certainly when it's reinforced with keeping secrets or making you feel very special, or it's something just between the two of you or someone's in a position of power or trust, um, then it becomes very confusing. Yeah, and I was wondering if you thought it was interesting just digging into Neverland in the case of um, Wade Robson, you know, he rarely used even the word abuse. It was sexual stuff. 
yes. a lot. Did you notice that? Yes, and the language, you know, the codes. When I interview victims, I hear these coded phrases a lot. And that's why I say tools like the DASH, the domestic abuse, stalking and harassment, and on a base violence risk model, it's like a lifeline to a victim. Because when you're asking those questions, what it's telling the victim is, it's okay to tell me. You can give someone permission to tell that secret, to tell that truth. But the, the word abuse is very problematic. And this is much more akin to brainwashing. It's really a seductive, manipulative, brainwashing process. And it is a process. It's a continuum. It doesn't happen overnight. It's very gradual. So let's talk about that. So I thought that the doc, Finding Neverland, and if you haven't seen it, you should see that before we dive into this conversation, I thought it did a really excellent job of producing it in a way that groomed us as an audience to experience it with the victims. I'm curious what you think about that. I would agree. I mean, it's four hours for those who haven't seen it. And I have to say, even being exposed to all the things that I've been exposed to, I, I finished it this morning and I was in tears. I found the second part so difficult to watch and the pain the authenticity and the rawness of the pain in both Jimmy and Wade for me was very apparent. And I think what Dan Reed did was very smart actually in the way that he approached it. Because this, as, as Dan says, this isn't about Michael Jackson. This is about two boys who were groomed and it is a process. And so seeing it mapped out chronologically was so helpful because you understood beat by beat how it happened. I completely agree. And I was curious, I was thinking about this on the ride here, because um, obviously, if you haven't noticed, Laura does not have our accent. She's from the UK. Um, did you got, was Michael Jackson as the Michael Jackson that I experienced my life? Was it the same in the UK in terms of incomparable to anybody before or after him? Absolutely. Okay. I mean, I grew up with him. Okay. He was a megastar. Yeah. And you know, a strange megastar, because obviously when you look at him, you realize he's something different to look at. Right. But in terms of his ability to perform and entertain, he was just on a different level. And so, yes, there for me, there was always this part that was, you know, the wow factor. But I have to say, having watched the BBC documentary of Martin Bashir, yeah. that was the first indicator, really, um, you know, multiple indicators in there that there were major problems. Well, I remember parts of it. I remember the Vegas shopping, like weird things that you're just like, this is crazy. But was that where he admitted for the first time that it was basically he slept with boys in his bed and it was fine? Yes. Yeah. And so that admission in and of itself, self-proclaimed, the brazenness of it, the, the fact that he's so confident. In plain sight. In plain sight. Because he fully knows that actually the challenge to him is, or the threat of it, is reduced dramatically by the tactics that he's put in place. And it, and it was a strategy. And having looked at those four hours and gone into it, you know, in depth, and I've taken notes beat by beat, how he manipulated not just the, the boys, but everybody else around them, the, the family and even the public. But you the know, world. This is a master manipulator. This is somebody who comported himself, you know, incredibly well. The press conferences, I, and I didn't see it before, but now I see a different lens. A hundred percent agree. I mean, that was the most interesting thing for me watching it, looking at myself, which was 
I believe these boys from the first minute that it started. It's just, you know, whatever it was about them, it was like there was no doubt. If there was a 10% doubt in my mind going into it, it was 100% from the beginning. Yet, even when they showed the clips of Michael crying and saying, I love children, you know, it's not that I doubted them for a second now. It's that I remembered why I couldn't believe it for so long. Because he was so, I thought Wade made the best point actually in the Oprah uh, after Neverland where he said, you know, we were being groomed by Michael before we ever met him. Yes. Right? Very powerful. This five-year-old little boy who, it's his idol, you know, to the point that he's dancing in the lounge. I remember being like that myself, yeah. incidentally, not to Michael Jackson, but, you know, when you see mega stars and you're into dancing and you're, you know, you're in this little bubble and you could see the little Wade as uh, five dancing away, getting all the clothes. And obviously he completely idolized him. So yes, there was that part. And that's a very astute um, comment from him because it happened way before and with the families. Talk about the grooming in general and just, you know, because I think whether you're talking about, um, you know, abducted in plain sight or leaving Neverland or R. Kelly, there is this grooming process that happens with predators. And and you talk about that a lot. So talk about sort of like what those signs are and what the process is. Yes, I mean, any form of grooming or brainwashing, and I'm going to break it down and I'm going to call it coercive control. Okay. We see it with children too. You know, it's the same principles, it's the same tactics, and there's a strategy in place. And the strategy is to create this codependency and domination of another. So you create rules and regulations for them. Now, in an adult child, and I'm not going to call it a relationship because Good. this is not a relationship. This is an abusive situation that has been created by Michael Jackson and you know this kind of love bombing of them and I talk about love bombing yep. with adult female victims is very present so you've got somebody in a powerful position you've got someone in a position of trust you've got somebody who the world continuously reinforces as a good person and I think what Dan Reed did very well in the documentary as well was showing Princess Diana meeting Michael Jackson the president Ronald Reagan meeting Michael Jackson all these people and then you cut to these little children looking up at Michael Jackson everyone's saying in those messaging that Michael Jackson is a good person right so it's it being reinforcing yeah you know and when Michael is using tactics like God has brought us together and I love you and our love bond is so strong and you're special you know this idea of being special well we all want to feel special and I'd invite anyone who listens to this podcast just to think about that for a minute whether you're a child or whether you're an adult we all want validation well that's what I find so interesting, again, just kind of across all of, you know, all of these docs and these ex real life experiences, which is that even when these adult, um, I don't want to call them victims, survivors, even when these adult survivors speak about what happened, they still speak with love and admiration. And even Jan in mm. Adopted in Plain Sight says, you know, till this day, and she's, I believe, in her 40s or 50s, you know, I've never met anyone that made me feel this way. And it's kind of incredible because it's not love, right? Because it's not love the way we understand love, a normal love to be. But it's that feeling of, you know, it, in fact, in leaving, in leaving Neverland, when Jimmy's on the, that plane with Michael and we hear that interview that they do together from on the Hawaii. plane from yes. Hawaii. And he Stood says, what was the best time? And he said, it was just spending time with you. I mean, can you imagine this international superstar has now been, you know, around the world doing millions of fans coming to see. And, and the best part is being with this, you know, 10 year old. 
convincing you that you're safe, convincing you that you're special. Yes, a megastar saying that, but right there, there's a huge risk factor. There's a huge warning sign, right? Anyone who wants to spend more time with your child than you do, there's a major problem. And any parent who is seeing that, seeing a, a coach, a teacher, somebody in a child's life who wants to spend time with your child more than you do, you have to ask questions about them because the nice guy offender, you know, they hide in plain sight and they are very capable of grooming multiple people. He well, seduced exactly. the whole world. Well, right. And so that's, that's such a good point because again, comparing leaving Neverland and abducted in plain sight, both abusers did an an incredible job of manipulating and grooming the parents. I mean, with with the Brombergs, it was literally he was sleeping with both the parents, as far as we know. I mean, we don't know exactly what happened with the dad, but we know there was something. And well, we know that there was masturbation at the very least. <laughs> right, right. He, he was just helping out a friend. You know? And that part in that doc, you just to cut into that, was a very bizarre. Uh, you think? <laughs> yeah, the whole the whole thing, the double manipulation. Well, that talks to how um, how clever that whole play was by that particular individual you know this is somebody who is very sophisticated and has been doing it for many many years that it is a it's a double manipulation well we'll talk about that also sorry we're all a little all over the place but i want to stay focused on the grooming part a little bit more how do these people know who to target like how does Maybe, you know, Michael Jackson never did do anything with Macaulay Culkin and, you know, because he was famous and it was higher risk. Like, talk about how they know who they, how did they, how did Michael Jackson know he could get those mothers on board and basically alienate them from the rest of the family? How did this guy know that he could have affairs with both the parents and the kid that abducted the girl the first time, then have an affair with the mom and abduct her a second time? Like, how do they, you know, these are not insane people, I don't think. They're no, not. Meaning the, meaning the victims, not the abusers. No, absolutely not. I mean, victimology, victim selection, target selection is a vital part of the offender's grooming and manipulation. So, and I always talked about Jimmy Savile. So he was a very uh, high profile children's entertainer in the UK that I also, you know, grew up watching his shows, Jim Will Fix It. And I have to say, even as a child, I always knew something was slightly off. Okay, just the way that he presented. But can you just tell people who that was? So Jimmy Savile yeah. was really the UK's Michael Jackson right. in the sense that this children's entertainer had to show Jim will fix it, various other things, always doing good things for sick children. Or, you know, you would write to Jim will fix it about a dream that, you know, you want to go and see Michael Jackson in America. Let's tie the two together. And yeah. Jim will fix it. Jimmy Savile would then have you on the show and you would sit on his lap. And he would then tell you your dream is going to come true and then off you would go. Well, Just like make a wish almost. Yeah. So, wow. And he had been grooming and abusing hundreds and hundreds of children across, across the years, even in hospitals, Elisa. Oh Sick children God. who had cancer and multiple people knew about this. And one of our, he was a former police officer, actually, someone called Mark Williams Thomas, who left, I think it was Surrey Police, then did an expose of him uh as a, as a you know as a new journalist and it ended up in a documentary and very very powerful this was also after jimmy savile had died and right then of course you had hundreds of people come forward uh, as child child victims now adults saying well it happened to me and lots of people said well how how could that have happened but it's exactly the same thing you've got somebody who's got this you know public persona the 
sense that they're doing good things. And, you know, right. Michael Jackson reiterated over and over as his public messaging, but I love children. I could never hurt children. Could I tell you how many cases of sex offenders, child sex offenders who have said that on interview, but I love children. I could never hurt a child. I didn't hurt them, but yet ev all their behavior points to them sexually abusing the child in their heads. They are not hurting the child. But is that true? That's what I really wanted to ask you today. Don't, I think he does know because he knows the difference between right and wrong. He's telling these kids will both go to jail when he and Jimmy are having their little wedding. He he has to tell the jeweler that it's actually for a woman like he knows what's happening. Well, here's the subtlety of it. And just to quickly go back to your first question yeah. of, you know, the way that they work is they could stand there and watch children play in a playground and they work on the not you, not you, not you, mm. but you. Wow. you know, they may see a vulnerability in a child and that vulnerability. And I've talked about this. I talk about it a lot in training vulnerability can be anything yeah okay that doesn't mean to say that there's some weakness around the individual a right. vulnerability can be michael jackson is your absolute idol right. and therefore you are blind to anything else around that person and that just to clarify that doesn't make you stupid that doesn't make you an idiot it that doesn't. makes you have a vulnerability like all of us do in different ways and it gives the offender a it's leverage right. basically to be able to manipulate that individual so you know i talked about it in a case of uh, a woman called helen bailey who was coercively controlled by a man who had uh, she had met after her husband had, had died in this very tragic accident in, I think it was in Bermuda. She was on the beach and she watched him get caught in a riptide. Now, she wrote a book called When Bad Things Happen in White Bikinis. Sorry, <laughs> When Bad Things Happen in Good Bikinis. Because her way of dealing with things was her grief was putting it in a book and putting it out there. Well, this individual met her online in a bereavement chat forum and he targeted her and he created this whirlwind relationship situation. And, you know, within months he had proposed to her. He had moved her out of London and um, he had persuaded her to change her will. She's, she was oh, a very successful God. children's author. Uh. I'm talking about millions in her estate. Wow. And she did this and then she went missing. Now, the bottom line is this was a, a terrible case. But when I looked at the case and I understood it was about coercive control and he was giving her sleeping pills and drugging her um, before she disappeared and her family would say things like, but she was very strong as a woman. She was articulate and eloquent. And, and I could see that she recorded things online and I could see she was all of those things. But her vulnerability, her weak spot was she, she was going through grief. Right. And he targeted that. So whatever it is, in those individuals who are predatory, they are looking for those, you know, signs and symptoms. And they also have a type. So with Michael Jackson, I do want to make the point that there would have been a type. So it's like, you know, me, yes, I love men, although a lot of people say that I do not because all my work <laughs> is around violence against women and girls. But I we all have a certain way that we like someone to look or right. certain things. You know, we have a preference type. Well, right. So to do abusers. So if Macaulay Culkin says that he wasn't abused, well, I can believe that. But yeah. that does not take away or detract from those who he did abuse. Yeah, and that's an important point because people are saying, well, you know, serial predators, they abuse everyone. No, that's not they true. They do not. Yeah. It's the same with all of us. You know, if you're a lesbian, that doesn't mean to say you fancy every woman. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, if you're a gay man, you don't fancy every man. It's just such a ridiculous thing. And yeah. what the media did of saying, well, Macaulay Culkin first gives evidence and another boy goes in, that... 
should never be used as any kind of leverage to say, ergo, somebody else's experience is not valid because they will not abuse everybody and it will work on the basis, not you, not you, not you, but you. And we saw with Michael Jackson that boy after boy who he has his arm around and i gotta say those images for I me know. were so disturbing i agree one one of the most salient things from the doc was him you know we've all seen we were watching the footage at the time of him just entering cars and going out of cars and through crowds holding a little boy's hand like a girlfriend or boyfriend would exactly. do exactly the embrace was the important thing yeah. the arm around him it's like a lover's embrace yeah. and those photos were like lovers intimate photos and I defy anyone to see those images and not understand because a picture as I constantly say paints a thousand words it, it matters not to me that there were those that you know stood up and said he didn't abuse them but it's much more important to focus on those who are standing up and I believe another 11 have come forward and yeah. we're going to be hearing more and more and his art of and it is like a seduction it was very gradual and so he took his time even though he had this persona even though he had the power he had the position but he took his time and he laid down little entrapments uh, behaviors where he would make not just the boys feel special, but th like they were helping him. Right. I'm so lonely. It's so hard for me. And they, I think one of them said that we felt like we were saving him. The yeah. mother said that too. So just going back to my question of right and wrong, are they compartmentalizing then in, in terms of like, they do know the difference between right and wrong, but they also have to believe that it's not abuse. Like those two things can be at they can have that dissonance and they can exist at the same time for well, them to be able to abuse continuously. I mean, here's the thing. I think when you have someone like Michael Jackson or anyone who is in the stratosphere of their own kingdom, right. their own narrative with no one challenging them, they can create whatever narrative they want to. And so for Michael Jackson, you know, probably in his head, he's not physically hurting those boys. He's not making them do anything in, in his head that they do not want to do. But he lays the groundwork of the gradual touching, the art of seduction of them being in his bedroom and him probably saying very nice things to them. They probably do start off watching movies, but the gradual tactile touching, then it moving into other things and him saying that this is this is about love. This is how we communicate right, our love for each other. Love. And if, some, if somebody finds out, then it will be a bad thing for us and something bad might happen. So that's when you entrap people in a secret. So he obviously knew something... It wasn't right what he was doing. But when your narrative, you can create whatever you want and you're not being challenged. You know, he is, they called him the king of pot. Well, he was the king and the god and no one challenged him. And as he said, I think to a number of people, I always win and I always get what I want. Yeah, that that was chilling. That was chilling. And and also, the, so the commonality between, you know, R. Kelly, Michael Jackson, I'm, I'm forgetting the guy and abducted in plain sight. I mean, like. So Bob Hardect was it? Piece of shit that, be. that died. Yeah, B, be. right. So Bob, he, they all, and again, I think, you know, you can draw the commonality across all of the cases that you've worked on. The alienation starts, right? Where they start to say, your family doesn't love you or you need, this needs to be our secret. Where they start to, 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 to draw that wedge between, to get the person closer to you so that they will turn on the because if the family starts to find out the secret or to starts to intervene the the gig is up the jig is up that's right i mean isolation is the tool of all abusers so making someone feel special creating this codependency drawing the person closer to them so that they become their whole world and you know th this point where you are conflicted 
right? You love this person, but they're doing these things to you that actually as little boys, it may feel good. I mean, the physical act of it may feel good, but it's only later you find out that it's wrong. And it's so conflicting because on the one hand, you love this person, they've been good to you in so many ways. But on the other hand, they've done all these very uncomfortable things that, that, don't feel great. And as you talk to other people, you hear other people talking about their sexual experiences as you get older, you realize that this is not normal in, in inverted commas. Yeah. And so it it does dredge up all these conflicting feelings. And I think people think because of that word abuse, that it's something so physically horrible that happens to you, that it's so, uh, it repels you immediately. But this is the art of seduction. And so it doesn't. And I think what Oprah was saying, you know, and having listened to thousands of victims, you know, having had abuse in my own family, and I think we can all talk about someone that we know who's been abused. Maybe we were surprised when they came out, but keeping that secret is so corrosive and so damaging. And also, almost more than the abuse itself. It seems like that's what eats them alive more than the actual physical act of abuse, or at least that's what was seemed to that seemed to be the case in the the stuff that we watched and across these documentaries yeah i mean the secondary victimization and trauma and i've watched thousands of interviews and i've interviewed thousands of people and i can say watching jimmy in particular the pain on his face yeah. is it's palpable to me and the fact that they say they still live with this this isn't just oh we've told our story and that's it this is the journey of their life and the fact that it was a continuum you know for me the most compelling footage in the documentary is listening to the wives and the wives of both jimmy and wade amanda and laura and hearing them talk about the relationship and how the relationships evolved and the behaviours of both men is, is classic behaviour for those who've been victimised and those who've been further traumatised by keeping this secret. And they were the points that really choked me up when I was listening to Amanda and how, you know, it felt like someone had just punched her in the stomach when she found out. But really what she was saying is that everything then made sense. Yes, yeah, right. Right. The same for Laura. Everything then made sense when and even the way that that revelation came about. I mean, firstly, the first disclosure was to a professional. So Dr. Shaw, there's a first disclosure there. So I don't care what anybody else says about, you know, whether they're telling the truth or not. There's a disclosure there in a private forum for him to work through his own issues. But the fact that the brother who was a police officer or is it? I don't know if he is still now, but oh, Shane. The, oh, I didn't realize that. Yeah, okay. he was a police officer in Australia. And he says that his wife had a dream. Yeah. Literally the that night was, before. I just got chills again. Yeah. So did I. Yeah. That, you know, Wade had been sexually abused by Michael Jackson. And then Shane says to Wade. The next day. The next day. And Wade had an hour before told his counsellor about the abuse, the first disclosure. Well, that in and of itself, if that's triangulated with <laughs> the professional. Yeah then you've got first disclosure. But the reactions from Amanda, you know, and interestingly, she felt she'd been punched in the stomach, but Shane felt, you know, he was puffing his chest out. And that's a classic two different reactions. For Amanda, it made sense and it winded her because she's seeing his behavior up front. Yeah. Shane's the brother, the protector. That's how he would feel. And he didn't do anything. And then hearing the sister Chantel talk about the impact it would have on the mother, you know, of how and why didn't she know? Why didn't she understand what was going on? So all that complexity 
that they've been dealing with behind the scenes points to authenticity to me. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think what's you're, you're leading into a big question for everybody, which is and I think this happens and we we've experienced it with Dirty John and everything else, which is, you know, how could these parents let it happen? How could she be so stupid? You know, and it, there's a lot of victim blaming. Um, and obviously as a mother and, and as a human being for anybody, it's very hard to see any of these parents, um, you know, just letting their child sleep over at Neverland alone and at seven years old. I mean, it, it's a, it's a tough pill to swallow. Um, and same with abducted, obviously that was even heightened a million percent. Um, because we, in a way it's almost like we were all sedu- seduced by Michael Jackson. So we kind of even get it a little bit, whereas with inducted in hindsight, we don't get it at all. But anyway, talk, let's talk about the parents and let's talk about, I want to know what your feelings are about them as just Laura, the person, and then as the professional, because I think they might be different. Yes. I mean, that's a, it's a very interesting question. And I would imagine everyone who watched abducted in plain sight and also leaving Neverland uh, are struggling with those things. I mean, going to Abducted in Plain Sight, first of all, and I did post online saying, I'm going in, I'm going to watch this because so I many people that. had said, yeah. you really need to see this. Yeah. And and what, slowing down there for a second, what was your reaction when you finished it? Like, could you believe what you, because you've seen so much more than the rest of us in in life. Were you still like, what in the hell did I just see? I was. I mean, you know, I take time to process things. I'm a reflector. And, you know, it takes me a while to get congruent in my own thoughts and headspace. But in in my professional opinion, I'll talk about the professional. Normally, when you hear those kinds of outlandish stories, it normally points to truth, to authenticity, first of all. So um, some people might think when you hear something that sounds so fantastical, then it points to uh, that it points to deception. But actually, the the former is normally true. So I sat there conflicted on multiple points. I'm sure lots of people did. And the, the key part that stands out to me for my conflict is when the mother and father find out first off what has happened, you know, in terms of the abuse. And of course, she was taken by someone they trusted. And they have also been groomed by him. And they've both had sexual relationships with him. And rather than prosecute him, they choose themselves. They choose to save themselves. And as a on, on a personal uh, reaction point, I found that incredibly difficult. And I was really angry with them. And I felt that they had chosen themselves over their daughter, which is absolutely unacceptable as a parent. I, I wouldn't know any parent who would say that they would make that choice if the choice ever or something awful happened and they would have to choose. I think every person who I know, because I've had those discussions, would say they'd save their child. Do you think that they were just incredible narcissists or they were just in complete denial? Or well, that's both? A, <laughs> yeah, that's a good question because then the professional in me kicked in and, you know, putting together all your experiences, as, as we always do, you know, any judgment that we make is born from uh, all of our experience, kind of progressive bootstrapping. And of course, we make in, in our heads, we make uh, a million, sorry, it's a trillion. Uh, we have a trillion thoughts every second, you know, where we're crunching data, we're crunch, crunching information. But for me, you know, it pointed to just how manipulative 
B was, you know, to be able to control all of them in this way, to then have that presented back for him to have been arrested. And now there's a decision to prosecute and they decide not to go ahead with that prosecution. Well, I could understand it's the shame of both parents, you know, the shame of what's gone on and probably them not wanting that to be out in the community because it reflects on them. Now, we underestimate the power of shame. Right. And, and blame yeah. as, as emotions. Right. And there's a whole other level that wasn't really touched on, which was sort of the whole Mormon community and the faith, which was religion too. religion's yes. a big thing. And, the, and that community was a tight knit community. But people commented a lot on the mother in particular, um, sort of in contrast to the mothers in leaving Neverland, who were clearly emotional and by the end, clearly just tortured by the fact that they let this happen. But the mother in plain sight, even now, 30 years later, seemed emotionally disconnected and almost, you know, nostalgic for this relationship that she had with a psychopath. I mean, again, I'm using that as a loose term. I don't know if he was. But did you did that strike you as well, that she seemed somehow not connected to her emotions or to what actually happened? Well, when when trauma happens, you know, post-traumatic stress does kick in and disassociation with what's going on is very common. And particularly when PTSD is born out of abuse by someone that's known, it is much more long lasting, severe um, and problematic to treat because it's a whole trust of abuse and power and the relationship. And it literally everything means, you know, it means that everything's a lie. So this ability to compartmentalize, I think, is what we're seeing in all of the accounts that are being given. And I, I want to make the, the compartmentalization point because so often people expect someone to behave in a certain way if they have been abused. But I know thousands of women right now who, you know, those who have been abused that in the lives that they now lead, no one knows what's yeah. gone on. Yeah. You know, the secrets that children keep into adulthood we all keep those secrets and hide things and have the ability to compartmentalize. And to the exterior world, we are living our lives, some of us as, you know, functioning adults. Right. And on and on the flip side of that, I think the parents in, in this case want to believe it didn't happen. So they're going to believe their sons who say, no, it never happened. Even though he was brought up on charges, you know, there was a civil case. I mean, everything pointed to the fact that this man was a pedophile. They spent, they know that they, how much time they spent with him. They know the letters. They knew so much yet. Well, we asked and they said it never happened. So it didn't happen. And it just was left there. Yes. And I, and I think what we also saw just on camera and what Dan Reed did well is, you know, the mothers both, they're both quite different in their responses, but they both start out very strong, you know, in the way that they present. And then gradually you just see this toxic, corrosive uh, impact of what's gone on. You see it etched on their face. You see and understand and empathize. I did empathize yeah, for me them. Too. You know, I did feel empathy. I also felt sympathy and, you know, the fact that they didn't really get what was going on. And of course, they looked to the boys to, well, did it happen? You know, you can tell me. But keeping that secret, as Wade said, if they told someone, it destroys everything, not just for them, but for their whole family. And I think both mothers, you know, when Stephanie found out that he had died, she was so happy because she said he can't harm anybody else. But the opposite was true of Wade's mum, who went to bed for a week clutching the, the Michael Jackson jacket that he yeah. gave her. And I think, 
you know, again, and I, I will put this out there, the personal part of me was how could a mother let a child sleep in a bed with a stranger, not just one night, you know, night after night after night, and be okay with that? It's, you know, and again, we talked to the time. Well, she was seduced. Well, and that's, I guess, the bigger question is how much, because you know that this is an extreme example, right? Because it's Michael Jackson of all people. But how much of that was the Michael Jackson effect and how much was any person that's an, a master manipulator abuser that can seduce people into doing crazy things? Like, I guess that's what I'm still really curious about. Well, it's both. I mean, you can't have one without the other. Mm-hmm. So Wade Robson's mother, and I will put it out there, you can see how hungry and thirsty what she was. <laughs> she, you know, she moved, she broke up her family she to move She broke the family to up LA. to move her boy to LA to be with Michael Jackson because she saw huge opportunity there. She was ruthless with it. Yeah. And that's what her own family reacted to. And I react to that too. You yeah. know, she broke up the family. The husband was heartbroken. He takes his own life. You know, Wow. That when you think about what she did, but of course, on the other side, she was trying to create better opportunities for her son. But to have this uh, careless abandonment to leave her son, and yes, they may have listened at the door and so on and so forth, but I think Oprah makes a very valid point. Abuse is not about penetration. Right. So even if you go into that room and you see them sat there with their clothes yeah. on, Michael was very clever about how he, uh, in a very subtle way, created uh, an environment where the boys were okay with the touching to then you know and the fact that Wade talked about and I I will mention this act that he says he asked him to get at the end of the bed and spread his his butt cheeks and Michael would sit there masturbating that all talks to authenticity to me you know yeah so specific it's so specific and And they both by the way said that happened in the exact same way so that they you know yeah. Basically, they're being congruent. So similar fact in in the acts, because there's lots of things you can make right. a child do or do unto you. Yeah. And But the way that it's carried out and the shame that I see on his face when he's describing those acts is, yeah. is authentic. Oh, and totally. those micro expressions, you cannot make up. And that's what I look to also in interviews, facial profiling, micro expressions, leakage of, you know, any kind of movement or uh, the way the eyes move. But I I could see everything in terms of the authenticity of that account. And of course, I've got thousands to compare it against. But that's shame. And then him saying that to keep the secret and if people found out, then bad things would happen to you and bad things to me. And his desire to protect Michael Jackson. Again, now you have this child who's trying to protect the adult. So everything gets flipped on its head. Yeah, it's qu- it's quite remarkable. And I wanted to mention, because you did mention one of the sort of graphic scenes, and, and I know the filmmaker, there was some co- controversy over, you know, did he really have to get, did they have to get so detailed with the abuse? And, you know, my personal opinion is absolutely, because nobody wants to hear about that, right? That's the stuff, even if it abducted a plain sight, they never talked about it. That, so she never, the parents in real life at the time, didn't know what happened. Oh, they went to the doctor and the hymen wasn't broken. So everything's fine. She's good. She wasn't raped. And, you know, even Jan kind of didn't really go into great detail. And I think that does a disservice as hard as it is to hear. I think we have to hear it. And of course, we're all cringing through all of it. It's horrible. It's, it's, it's just unthinkable, but it makes it, like you said, authentic um, because, why would you make up that kind of specific detail? And also, I think that we all have to hear about the trauma to understand it, right? 
Well, there's two things. One is that if we don't bring it into the room, then we can't assess what it is that, that they're saying. And I always say this when I run training sessions, I bring cases, I make them listen to recordings. I, you know, put on, I, I make them and expose them to information of real cases because we have to talk about it in the room. Well, the other part to that is, you know, the reality of abuse is horrible. So wake up people Thank because you. that's yep. what we're talking about. And so whether it upsets people, you know, for me, Dan Reed did nothing gratuitous. You know, everything was done for a purpose, but it was not gratuitous and it was not sensationalist. But we needed to hear the detail and that detail pointed to the authenticity of those acts and, and the similar facts across cases, too. Yeah. And I feel personally, um, you know, it's not related to my work other than it's being a documentary and I want to watch, you know, how a documentary is produced. My, my husband said, why are you watching this? It's so horrible. And you're upset and I'm crying. You know, I said, because I feel like I owe it to the victims. And that for me is why other, you know, because because really once you've seen an hour, you're done in terms of how much you can actually take of this. And especially when you've grown up loving Michael Jackson and just saw Cirque du Soleil and Michael Jackson in Las Vegas a few months ago, which now makes me sick to my stomach. But I mean, his music, there's no way to describe how important he and his music was to my world from like the time I was 12. So you know, I feel like, no, I need to see this. I need to see the truth. Well, that's why we all didn't want to hear it. Yeah, of I course, mean, that's, exactly. Even in 2003 and listening yes. to Michael Jackson's press conference where he's outside, um, I think it's the courthouse and he's saying, I love you as a community. I love, I mean, the grooming that's going on, even in those messaging well, with that points. voice too. It's that yeah, child, it's like that he never had a childhood and he was abused and, you know, can't we just all help Michael? I mean, it's well, let's really talk amazing. about that because yeah. that's another very important part to this. Yeah. I, I have no doubt that Michael Jackson and Latoya, their accounts, there was veracity in what they were saying about Joseph, their father. Not just that he was an authoritarian and that he beat them with anything he could get his hands on, but L Latoya uh, disclosed sexual abuse. And I have no doubt that that happened. So I just want to play that out because, of course, abuse has an impact on those who are abused. So yeah, you have a, somebody who has been abused, who is emotionally stunted. And that's what we all see. Somebody who is emotionally uh, not at full capacity. And everyone says, well, he's very childlike. Yes, he is. As a product of being abused. Well, the same was true of Wade and also of Jimmy, where they talk about, Jimmy actually says, I was like a, I'm still like a child, my child processing, but in an adult body. Well, that is very true of those who've been abused. And that's why sustained abuse, it can lead to personality disorders, to psychopathy. Normally I see, you know, with domestic violence and the murders that the abuser has a long history of being abused themselves. Now that doesn't excuse. Right, of course. There's plenty who happened. don't go on. Right, well, exactly. it's a perfect... And so yeah. some do not go on to abuse, but they've done the work. Yeah. So, you know, and you've, you've got some who will continue to be victimized. So it doesn't always point to that you will repeat that cycle. But the point I wanted to really make was about the trauma bonding. Right. The, the family came out with very strong statements in reaction to the documentary of saying, but why would those boys go back? Well, why did they all stand by their father, Joseph? Because it's for the very same reasons, actually. You know, and I'm going to call them out on it because they stood by their father and he abused them. 
So do we disbelieve them because it's a great point. It's a really good point. Thank you for making it. And I, and I want to touch briefly on R Kelly cause we're, we're getting to the end. Um, but that's, this actually does seg in, segue into it because Robert was abused as a child. I, I found that pretty authentic as well in terms of like the brothers, they were all kind of abused. Again, I find him to be a, a monster. Um, you know, I, I just a completely sickening individual, but there are a lot of parallels, um, with the parents, frankly, you know, even after all of this has been dogging him for years and years and years of them still saying, well, yeah, she, he can help my daughter's career. And, and, and then they hand the daughter over and next thing you know, she's being held hostage and brainwashed for 10 years. I mean, I, I did you, did you watch the series surviving? I haven't had a chance to watch all of that yet, but I did watch some of the interview (sighs) with R. Kelly um, by Gail King. So what did you make of that? Which was fascinating because we see his truth. I mean, those moments where he stands up in an aggressive stance and he's having a mantrum, you know, I'm calling it a mantrum, (laughs) like man tantrum where he's wagging his finger at her. I've been in those situations and I've also watched interviews and I know many women who will relate to that. But the fact that he can't persuade her any other way, he goes to his physical power. Mm. That is his truth. That is how he responds when he doesn't get his way. Now, again, here's a king who's used to getting his way. And so on national TV, when he's not, he then resorts to his default position, which is to use his personal power and be threatening with an aggressive stance. But all the while he's claiming victimhood. And that is a classic, for me, perpetrator reaction when challenged and being held to account, all the while saying, poor me, this is awful, this is all happening to me, while showing no compassion, no remorse, no empathy towards those victims, tells me everything about him. The mask has slipped, and that is the Mm. truth, his truth, of who he really is. And the fact that he kept saying, and this is, you know, just to draw a parallel back to Michael Jackson and the Jackson family, he repeatedly said, I beat my case. Oh, interesting. Well, he didn't beat his case. He was acquitted. Right. But the fact that he turns it into a positive, i.e. I beat my case, I was found innocent. Well, the Michael Jackson Foundation said exactly the same, that Michael Jackson was found innocent. No, he was not. Those statements in and of themselves are misleading and spin. When you're acquitted, that says that the the tested evidence wasn't found, the jury didn't find it to be strong enough to convict. However, a number of jurors in the Michael Jackson case in the 2003, uh, I think it was 10 counts brought against Michael Jackson, that the foreman said he believed that one or more of those boys were molested by Michael Jackson. So, but the evidence wasn't uh, right. compelling enough because right. when you have the defense and I think Johnny Cochran was involved, you know, spinning things and you've got Macaulay Culkin. Well, and Wade Robson. I mean, yeah, there's very you know, powerful and very compelling if people are saying, well, if it didn't happen to them, therefore it couldn't have happened, you know, in this case. But you've got that art of seduction too and the spin because, you know, we also heard about the lawsuit that Wade Robson tried to bring in 2013 and people are saying well that was dismissed by a judge it was (laughs) dismissed by a judge due to the time that had lapsed it was not dismissed due to weighing up the credibility of the allegations they are two totally different things well that's the thing that's so hard and not to end on a depressing note but I don't think there's any other note to to end on in in this kind of thing which is that across all of these cases and these documentaries and these real life situations I guess what's the hardest for me to and really triggering frankly that when you start to go on Twitter, you start to listen to, um, you know, the the talk about the docs is, you know, I see 
these women, especially on Surviving R. Kelly, that are so brave to speak out, that speak with such specificity about what happened. Again, so many commonalities that it starts to get repetitive because it's it's so evident that he's using the same tactics with all of them. Same with Michael Jackson. I mean, I found those two men to be so compelling. And yet you get seemingly smart and quote unquote, in inverted commas, normal people coming out and going, oh, come on. Why are they talking now? Why didn't they talk back then? Oh, what, where's the evidence? And, and it just blows my mind. Like, I guess the hardest part for me to swallow, and I'm sure you feel the same, is how hard it is to talk about this stuff and that there's nothing in it for them. Like Oprah said, you're going to get it <laughs> to the guys. I'm going to get it. Meaning death threats, meaning backlash, meaning, you know, there's nothing good. I mean, look at Christine Blasey Ford and the Brett Kavanaugh hearings. Nothing good came out of that for her. Nothing. And yet they do it anyway with that incredible bravery. And they're still not being believed. Like, how do you how do we deal with that? Because that to me is so hard. Well, that to me points to authenticity. You know, you speak your truth. Your soul will tell you what you need. And I saw from Wade Robson and, and Jimmy, to a degree, something lift in speaking their truth. Mm-hmm. And they are answerable only to the the higher level, whatever that might be, of, yeah. of their own truth and being true to themselves. They weren't remunerated. And, and I do just want to make the point because I've seen it in various articles. Yes, I've heard about all the messiness of, uh, you know, did Wade Robson sleep with Britney Spears <laughs> and did he request money from the family and request to attend the funeral? All those messy, complicated things to me all point to authenticity. Yeah. I would expect him (laughs) to be troubled and I would expect him to abuse substances at different times. I'd expect depression to be present. I'd expect him to be sexually promiscuous. All of those things, tick, 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 tick. And how conflicting it is of somebody that you love and cared for on the one hand was so incredible to you in making you successful and live your dream, but on the other hand, destroy your soul. And that sucking away, that keeping that secret, that toxic nature of abuse, you know, when you keep secrets, it, the impact it has on you and everyone else around you. And the trigger point for me was very profound in both them both having babies. And I know a lot of people who are triggered when they have their own children, because it intensifies of how could someone harm an innocent? How could this be done to me? All these complex emotions suddenly come to the surface when you are overwhelmed with this unconditional love you feel for this little thing and you wonder why or how, if this person really loved you, how could they do the things that they did to you? Yeah, and I thought, I can't remember if it was Wade or Jimmy or both, the way they articulated that they couldn't see it and they had no compassion for the, for little Jimmy or little Wade, but when they saw their, I'm gonna cry, just thinking about it, when they cry, when they saw their own son, they thought, oh, this this was me and, and how it, this is unthinkable. So it really was quite, quite poignant. It's so powerful. And that lack of compassion for yourself, yeah. the uh, lack of um, being able to see yourself in anything other than a harsh way and judge yourself and hold yourself to account and, and the Blame feeling yourself. that you did something to yeah. deserve this. As a child, you know no different. You don't know that it's your experience is any different from anybody else's. And, you know, you can see Wade Robson, his innocence and his, you know, just how young he is and looking up to his absolute idol. He could do no wrong. 
And it's so conflicting, the love that they felt. And yeah. I think people really do underestimate that conflict that right. somebody has who it's not something that they want to ever have to talk about. They don't want to create a, a bad situation. You know, when R Wade was saying he was looking at Michael Jackson's children and knew the devastating impact it would have if Michael went to prison and that Michael wouldn't survive prison just made him even more resolute and determined to keep the secret. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's super messy, as you said, and complicated and nuanced. Um, all right. So we have to wrap up, but I want people to know where they can find you all out in the ether on social media and podcasts, et cetera. So give us the. Yeah. Well, I, I want to end on a positive. Note, OK, good. Actually, thank you. Because, Lift us up, Laura. You know, having these conversations is so important that we do. It's so important that we talk about it, that we hear it on podcasts. Yeah. We make it an acceptable conversation. Breaking that silence and not colluding with a perpetrator, asking questions of them and challenging them. You could be that lifeline. So this happens in our homes. This happens, you know, in churches, in schools, in teams. We have to break the silence and give people a lifeline to talk about what went on because that, in that truth, in that talking is when people heal. So I, I actually do think this is a very positive conversation to have. You know, to get into intervention and prevention, to hold abusers to account. If you see something, say something. If you see something and they will most of the time be manipulative and hide in plain sight. So make sure that you are not being complicit and mm -hmm. being groomed in the process. So I spend a lot of my time educating people. That's why I'm so pleased to come on your podcast and that you're, you're covering these stories and these cases. Um, those who want to look more into my work, you can find my website, laurariches.co.uk. I've actually added some new information on coercive control on there. You can sign the register petition that I have for uh, re for stalkers and repeat domestic violence offenders to go on the same register as sex offenders so that we're not relying on victims' accounts. Because mm -hmm. we will see with all these cases, more and more victims come forward. And you can find me on Twitter at Laura Richards 99 on Instagram. I think I'm Laura Richards 999 Also, Real Crime Profile. Yeah, those are all great. And by the way, on Instagram, you get some extra because you get a lot of cute Queen Bee pictures. Too. You get Queen Bee pictures. <laughs> and also just to say those, I'm going to be in London across March. So okay. if people are interested in my training, I have about, I have many training sessions lined up, but I have some in London that people can book onto. So if you go on my dash risk checklist.co.uk um, website or even on the Twitter account, you'll be able to see when those classes run. But I have classes on coercive control, on stalking, how to identify the behaviours, how to have the conversations with victims and how to prevent murders in slow motion. So I'm going to have a very busy period now yeah. across March working in London. But for me, standing in classrooms is such an important part of the work that I do and also talking out in the media because right. you can educate millions by talking in the media rather than in classrooms. I can get 25 maybe a hundred people at one time. So the power of the media is very important in having these conversations and educating journalists to ask the right questions about what's going on. Yeah. And, and thank you for doing that today. I think it, people are going to really have their eyes open in a different kind of way. It's a little departure from my usual podcast, um, but, but nonetheless, super interesting and important and, and related. So um, it is. And also yeah. finding or leaving Neverland, it was beautifully shot. I mean, oh, in terms yeah. of the cinematography, which I think Dan Reed did himself. Beautiful. Um, and so quiet. Like, so do you know what I mean? Like you could hear every 
Like every, I just thought it was so effect. It, it was so intimate. It was very know? intimate. But the shots yeah. of LA was was cool. stunning wow. and taking you on yeah. that journey. Yeah, it was slow and quiet, which is exactly kind of how we all needed to get sucked in to hear the story. So yeah, just from a purely documentarian, you know, filmmaker produce producer point of view, it was it was just well done. Very powerful. Yeah. Well, thank you for doing this. I always love talking to you on or off the mic. <laughs> well, thank you very much, Elisa. I appreciate you taking the time to talk about this. And Queen Bee have very, and I have very much enjoyed <laughs> talking with you today. Thank you. Thank you.